When I was in college, a group of us went to see a famous Christian author who was performing a one-act play in Chicago on the life of Christ. And afterwards, a a friend of mine who knew uh, this author invited me to tag along for for dinner with him and a couple other people. We uh, chatted, talked for at least an hour or so. And basically what I heard from this author was him haranguing and criticizing the church. He was particularly critical of big churches, uh, going on about them selling out and generally telling us that the church world was out to lunch. Wasn't the first time I heard such a thing, wasn't the last time, certainly. But I remember thinking afterward that I couldn't tell if this gentleman was an advocate for biblical community or an atheist plant who was trying to blow it all up. I couldn't tell the difference. Now, certainly every church deserves some inspection, but I just couldn't tell which side that this guy was on. I was thinking about that conversation. I really don't want to be that kind of Christian. I really don't want people guessing about whether I'm for Jesus or or for the church. I'm not questioning the man's motives. I'm not talking about his spiritual state. But the point is, I don't want to send mixed messages. And I think we can send mixed messages in a variety of ways, right? This is particularly true on Palm Sunday, or what we call the triumphal entry. Let's take a look at our passage, and we're going to talk about this now for the next few moments. Let's all stand. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Father, may your Holy Spirit take your word. Help us to glean what you have for us and apply it to our lives. That we leave here transformed, not just with more knowledge. Only your Spirit can do that. So we depend upon you for him uh, to do that very thing in each of our hearts. Thank you that your word is true. We humbly come before you and know that there's much we don't understand. Some things we just don't get. But those things that are clear, may we uh, also be clear about. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would um, help each of my dear friends today to understand And to put into practice these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, today is what we call Palm Sunday. It refers to the celebration of the people who greeted Jesus as he went through the streets of Jerusalem. It's also known as the triumphal entry. Now, Jesus rode into Jerusalem during Passover, and that has profound meaning on many levels. We know that there were political factions vying for power. You know, you had the Roman citizens, and you had religious power brokers. Uh, the Jews were in bondage to Rome, and they desperately wanted to be free from Roman rule. Uh, there was great spiritual significance of this event, as it was a part of an incredible 70-week prophecy of Daniel, which pegged the triumphal entry to the very day. And that prophecy was given five centuries before. But what I'd like for us to do is to take a lens back and consider some relevant themes for the church. I've already touched on it this idea of mixed messages. We call it Palm Sunday because as Jesus rolled through Jerusalem on a donkey, the people laid down palm leaves and even some clothing. This was a reception for royalty. Now, that's great. Palm leaves are wonderful as a way to show royalty. The problem is the Jews had an extra little meaning given to that. Jesus didn't choose the palms. The crowd did. And the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is a term that means save us. Save us now. The generation before Jesus, when Simon Maccabees drove Israel's enemies out of Jerusalem, people celebrated by waving palm branches. And as a historical reference, it's not scripture, but listen to this. We read in 1 Maccabees 13, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy has been crushed and removed from Israel. The Jewish crowd shouted these words and waved their palms to have Christ save them from Roman oppression. Save the nation! Save us to bring about the fulfillment of the physical kingdom now. But the physical kingdom was not what Jesus came to do the first time. It was not a military victory. The king came to die. Zechariah 12.10 says, When they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I suppose that there's an aspect to this that I think really has great meaning for us, kind of has deep calls to deep to consider. If the palms are a warning to how religion can go wrong, the donkey is a reminder of the way of Jesus. Palms, donkey. All the gospel accounts give Jesus the credit for choosing a donkey. It was a sign to his people. It was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. 
Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king come to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, foil of a donkey. He came humbly, not as a military leader. So this day that Jesus went through the streets of Jerusalem is a, is a study of contrasts, mixed messages about the person and the work of Jesus. Any of that going on today? Creating Jesus for what we want him to be, not for who he really is? We see Israel's refusal to acknowledge Jesus, and this, to acknowledge him as he really was, this was very costly. Remember, it was Jesus in Luke 19 who prophesied a very bleak future of Israel because they opted for a religious system that essentially omitted an authentic relationship with him. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I mean, we looked at a couple years ago, Hosea, and now we're in the middle of looking at Second Peter. And we learn that God is not shy about making sure there are consequences for those who reject him. This includes his people who, like the crowd on Palm Sunday, they feigned worship for Jesus, but quickly turned against him because he was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. Mixed messages. It reminds me, in our old house that we lived in, during Christmas, there was a guy that lived across the street from us, and he was a wonderful artist. I really liked this guy. But for Christmas, he set up this wood, perfect effigy in his lawn of Beavis and Butthead right there with Christmas lights along it, all right? And then next door to him, the next door neighbor was a former missionary who had the uh, manger scene. It was like dueling scenes for Christmas, right? So, of course, I took my kids in front of Beavis and Butthead and took a picture and, you know, we have it on our mantle now. No, we don't. But, um, but that was just, you know, you talk about a mixed message. That was weird. So we have to ask ourselves some questions here to make sure that we're not sending out mixed messages. Here's the first one. Will we opt for political power over, religion, over allegiance to Christ? Now first let me say this. We have people that work for the government, politicians, which I'm very grateful for. And they utilize their influence to try to make life better for the rest of us. That is great. What I'm talking about here is when you're using political power to wield control over others, to demonize your enemies, to strong arm people, to take a tone that is certainly unchristlike. So that's really what I mean by political power here, not just involvement in politics. 
See, when Jesus rode to town, there were mass of people in the streets. And we're never told how many, but certainly historians say there were thousands. And we're told that these people were very excited about the potential of a new king, and they greeted him with jubilant praises, gestures of submission. Their hearts, though, would soon belie their words. Because some of these same people, throwing down the palms, Hosanna in the highest, would be a part of his execution crowd. Yelling for a crucifixion. How can that be? How can that be that people can turn so quickly? One problem was that the religious community focused on external displays, particularly in might and power, political and military force, trying to fuse those things together. You know, Christianity has a bleak history when it has chosen political power. Philip Yancey has written a little book called Christians and Politics. It's a good read if you haven't read it. And Christians involved in politics, um, and again, using it as I defined before, have tended historically to get off on tangents. In the 1840s and 50s, a major campaign with the odd name No Nothing Movement demonized Catholics and raised historical fears about them. Historian Mark Knoll has written about a Philadelphia fracas in 1844, sparked when a Catholic bishop requested the Catholic schools be allowed to read their own version of the Bible instead of the King James Version. Rioters burned several Catholic churches and killed more than a dozen people. Be careful, warned one philosopher, lest in fighting the dragon you become the dragon. When Christians thrive on power, their labors are not for the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of might. But listen, there are things in our culture that we have to fight against, right? I mean, I look at our whole identity culture. And it saddens me that people are just groping for an identity. And we as Christians have a good answer to that. And we can be salt and light to that, right? I'm certainly not saying put your head in the sand. But we have to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, and knowing how we relate to the public square. The church has to always discern which injustices are worth challenging. But I would suggest a pious withdrawal is bad for both the church and the state. Nazi Germany posed a severe threat to the church and test to the church, to which the church mostly failed. Practicing an individualistic faith with no strong tradition of, of challenging and being salt in light, the German church leaders waited too late to protest. In fact, many Protestant leaders initially welcomed the Nazis as an alternative to communism, and Christians adopted a motto that now seems utterly incomprehensible. Here was the motto, the swastika on our breasts 
the cross in our hearts. See, the church works best as a force of resistance, a conscience to society that can keep itself at arm's length from being controlled by the state or trying to control the state. Now, there's nothing wrong with photo ops, with political leaders, but I wonder how many times when we do that and we, we align ourselves with political leadership, we cut off part of our audience. You know, many people have commented that they don't know my politics. That's by design, okay? That's not what this pulpit is for. Now, I know a lot of pastors do. That's for them to figure out. I'm not criticizing anybody else. I'm just saying my main Okay, focus here is the gospel and the word of God. Why would I want my politics to get in the way of other people listening? No, that we have a mixed audience of different political ideologies. Why would I want to shun somebody? That doesn't mean I don't have political convictions. The sad case, though, is this. That I could stand up here and make a statement about a political leader, and I know I would lose people, because people would be upset, for or against. But I could say something doctrinally unsound or misrepresent the Bible, and many Christians wouldn't care. <laughs> like the masses on Palm Sunday. They feel more strongly about their politics than allegiance to Christ, and that's a problem. Again, it's not that we shouldn't have political convictions, but our ultimate allegiance, first and foremost, is to Christ. Political ideology, power, or Christ? What's my main allegiance? Next is, what would Jesus overturn in our church or in our individual lives? You read about the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And the next event in Matthew, the next section, Matthew 21, 12 through 16, is Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. I mean, just when you feel like you got Jesus figured out, he does something like that, right? He ruins our perception and disrupts our Religious practices. And we read why Jesus did this. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Those in the temple were far more concerned with lining their pockets than the spiritual matters of their heart. So our hearts need to be aligned to God's agenda and not some agenda in our hearts that we're trying to use Jesus somehow. You know, I, I think many think they can 
relegate God to a Sunday external display. And then go home and have a marriage in which they are selfishly claiming their rights running down a spouse. Some sing and raise their hands in a service while they harbor bitterness within their own family. Some serve in a ministry for for all to see while they are prideful at work, talking behind the backs of other employees, spreading discord. Some will drop money in the offering plate, feel good about themselves while they're involved in immoral relationships. See, real allegiance to God is shown in allowing Christ to have control over every area of our life. It's like one leader of a large car dealership here, or, um, I heard one of the guys that worked with him, with him say this, that uh, the guy went to church and he said, I'd never let church get in the way of my business. <laughs> wow. Jesus always had his life aligned with his father's will, his father's agenda, what his father wanted. See, my problem, our problem, is our daily struggle with our flesh, battling with what we want, our agendas, our plans, our aspirations. We want to use our money the way we want to. We don't want the Bible to interfere with any of that. We want our politics the way we want. We don't want to have any religious convictions to have anything to do with that. We want to relate to the people we want to, not loving our enemies. I want to harbor bitterness and resentment towards the people I don't like. I don't want Jesus confronting me about those things. For many people, religion is fine as long as it helps me in my, you know, entrepreneurial pursuits, helps me in my relationships, helps me achieve my goals, as long as God doesn't get in the way. That is not following Jesus. That is using Jesus. If we follow Jesus... The Father's will is our compass. And here's what that looked like to Jesus. Numerous times, Jesus communicated his mission was to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he would end up on a cross at Golgotha. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is in Luke 9. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. The people did not receive him because of the direction that Jesus was going. And many in the evangelical church have it backwards. We want the people to receive us. We want them to approve of us. We'll do whatever they want to hear. We'll get to Jesus later, but don't let that get in the way. I mean, you know, we can talk about humility and 
service and all that. Maybe in a little Sunday school class, but that out where everybody can hear. At least don't take it seriously. I mean, repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we read about this three-year public life of Jesus as he was headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place of death. It was a place of trial, of beating on a cross, a crucifixion. And Jesus willingly journeyed to Jerusalem. That was the plan all along. That doesn't mean that Jesus is calling us to a physical cross, but he is calling us to crucify our own desires, our own plans, and make sure that we are subservient to his. The crowds wanted a king to crown, to free them from Roman rule. And when Jesus rides to town, they see what they want to see. A military messiah. One who would deliver them from bondage. The masses had their agenda, but Christ refused, and he stayed committed to his father. On mission, went to Jerusalem. Man, I think of this application of how we present Christianity to people. I've said it a hundred times, and you're going to get tired of me saying it, but we have to be reminded because all around us is a form of Christianity that says, God, you owe it to me to get healed. You owe it to me to, that I be blessed all the time. And what we mean by that is some external, comfortable display to make my life easier. And we know at least some of the reason why they do that because people love to hear that, right? Get blessed, get rich, be victorious. And now with the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, Christians are to take over political institutions so we get everybody to do what we want them to do. But that is not the life that Christ modeled. And it's not the life of his followers who are serious about following him. The fact is, is that Jesus would overturn our views of Christianity sometimes. Particularly when those views reject suffering, reject humility, reject patient endurance, and opt for political power, control. We want a triumphal entry with a white horse and a sword. And Jesus rides, what? On a donkey? It'd be like Jesus riding through the streets now on a Corvair. Like, what? And most of you don't even know what a Corvair is. Like, the cheapest car, most dangerous car ever built. Cheap. Or maybe a Yugo. <laughs> like, come on, Jesus, ride at least in a convertible Cadillac. I mean, come on. No, that wasn't his way. And then what does he do? I mean, he takes a basin and he washes the feet of the disciples. Servant. I mean, that just doesn't fit the model of this great political leader. You know, I, I don't think a lot of Christians will say it out loud, but I think deep down, they really think Jesus is a loser. If you got him off by themselves, Jesus is a loser. They just won't admit it because 
He doesn't align with their warped view dictated by their own agendas. This last point, we don't have time to go through. I'm going to skip it. Listen, every one of us here have had these attitudes. I have, you have. I'm not pointing at other guys, okay? This is us. This is me. And what Jesus offers is meeting us at our ugliest points, shining light on our sin. And then his grace offers forgiveness. And we come to the table begging his servants. That communion table of feasting with the king. That's the kind of table I'm talking about. See, in reality, I don't need Jesus to save me from a political system. I need him to rescue me from myself. My flesh. Can you join me in that? Not just in rescuing me, but <laughs> rescue all of us from ways of operating. And I know it against, goes against the grain of culture, and sadly, it goes against the grain of the way Christianity is portrayed a lot. And I'm not responsible for all that. I'm responsible for what we're doing right now, right here. That our message be as much as possible consistent. It's not that the external displays are bad, it's just that's not where the fruit of Jesus is. The fruit is in that hum humble service and love, right? I mean, God may give individuals riches and even places of power, which I'm glad, and I hope that they use that to serve the, serve the community. That's wonderful. That's just not the ultimate goal. And certainly the life of Jesus communicates that to us.